Hi, this is Kim, and welcome back. I am so honored that the standards Tim Vandernack wrote an article about Weber County's Greatest Generation for Veterans Day, and he did a great job in capturing why I do what I do, and I'm really grateful for all of you who gave me a thumbs up or called or emailed. I also wanted to say thank you to all of you who bought a copy of the 1943 book. Almost all of the copies of my first order are gone, but if you are still interested, I should be able to get another order here before Christmas. And so if you want, you can order it from my website or just message me on my Facebook page. So with this being Veterans Day, I wanted to acknowledge the servicemen who had died during the war from Weber County. And again, I started out and found that 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 was an overwhelming project, which would be a really long podcast. So I started with 1942. 43, 44, and 45 will be coming soon. When I started this back in 2014, I was looking through the newspapers and found all the articles on everyone who was going into the service, the stories about who was missing and who had been killed or um, injured. And so my first question was really seems naive to me seven years later is how many men and women from Weber County served? So I began using digital copies of the standard examiner to create an Excel spreadsheet. When I thought just estimating about how many there would be, I thought it would be around 2000. Within a couple of years, I had passed 6,000 names and I had started to question both my sanity and what in the world I was going to need to do with all of this information. I think the spreadsheet um, is about 225 pages long if I ever printed it. During that time, I was trying to find the official list of the casualties for Weber County. I figured that there must be one somewhere that somebody had compiled all the information. I found the military official list that was printed in 1946, but it didn't take me long to realize that it wasn't complete and in a lot of cases wasn't even accurate. So on this spreadsheet, I began to highlight those who had been killed with the purpose of creating a definitive, a definitive list. So then again, what am I going to do with all this data? So the idea of a book, almost a scrapbook of information that came out of the newspaper was born. I started out not knowing how I would get it published or who in the world would even care. In 2015, I took an online class to learn the basics of InDesign, which is the program I used to create the book, and just got started. There were so many missteps, and I would get started and think, oh, that's not going to work. And then my computer crashed, and I lost the whole book one day, and I was just so frustrated. I thought, why do this? First of all, it's such a big project, I didn't think I could do it. And second of all, I... Who am I to take on such a huge process? I'm not an English major or a historian or a writer, but something in those seven years just kept me going. It's something that I just could not let go of. I decided that I would have to self-publish the book, which I did and something I didn't think I could do. The first book came and it kind of worked. So that was enough to keep me going through the second book and hopefully through the third and the fourth as well. I've had a ton of supports from my family and friends, and we are now approaching the 80th anniversary of Pearl Harbor. 
I have a ton of information about our servicemen and the growing pains that took place during World War II, so we'll talk about that a little bit in later in the podcast. The podcast started when I realized that even if I got through all the years of the war, there wasn't enough room for the stories. I really wanted to save the stories. Earlier this year, I completed the list of those who had been killed. I'm not even going to say it's complete because I keep finding more information. So let's just say it's the latest list. So the idea of a podcast was born. I've never done a podcast. I didn't know how to start. So again, you just jump in and hope you get it right. So thanks for bearing with me with this very unprofessional podcast as we try to share the stories of our servicemen. Weber County's first death was actually in 1941. And Ogden was just a normal Sunday on December 7th until the news of the Pearl Harbor attack came across the radio and the entire world was changed. And for the next four plus years, the men of Weber County will be sent all over the world. Most came home, but not all. Weber County's first casualty was Ensign Howard Dill Merrill, who was on the USS Arizona. The Dr. Leslie Merrill family won't get the news until the next week. And even then, they were cautioned, not to mention the shit their son was on, to, quote, avoid giving aid to the enemy, unquote. One of the things I didn't know when I started was how many places the Japanese attacked on December 7th. And in some cases, the date was December 8th because of the international dateline. Two of those places, Wake Island and the Philippines, already have Weber County soldiers and sailors there. In the Philippines, the United States had two military bases. The Cavite Naval Base was abandoned shortly after it was destroyed by Japanese bombers. Our second casualty, Quartermaster William Robert Dean, died on January 19th of 1942. When his mother, Mrs. Helen Dean, was notified that her son was missing, they told her not to tell anyone where he was stationed. And we'll talk more about the Army base there in a few minutes. Tiny Wake Island is about 2,300 miles west of Honolulu and 2,000 miles from Japan. It is only four and a half miles long and two miles wide at the widest point. At the time of December 7th, there were 449 Marines, 69 sailors, and a six-man radio attachment from the Army. There were also about 1,100 civilian contract employees from Morrison-Knutson there on December 8th. They were there building an airfield when Japan attacked. So on December 11th, just four days after the Pearl Harbor headlines, the United States announced a stunning victory at Wake Island. The tiny force there had repulsed an attempted amphibious attack and had sunk two Japanese warships. They were able to hold out until December 23rd when Wake was successfully invaded. 900 Japanese stormed ashore. It was considered the first win for the U.S. in the war and was called the Alamo of the Pacific. The survivors, both civilians and servicemen, were taken prisoner and put on a ship for China. There were 98 civilian workers who were kept on the island for slave labor, and they were all killed shortly before the U.S. landed again in October of 1943. Our third casualty is the one that still haunts me, and that's Seaman John William Lambert, the son of Mr. and Mrs. Jacob Lambert, who was 17. He was killed on January 23rd of 1942, 
And what happened was they called five prisoners from um, the hold below deck and they were beheaded by different Japanese officers. It was considered one of the first of the Japanese atrocities against the U.S. and they held a war crimes trial at the end of the war. After the war, when the POWs were coming home, there was no sign of John. So his parents traveled all over the United States talking to those who had come home. His mom would later find out from a reporter after the story was published during the war crime trials. I found a really interesting story about our next two deaths. Lieutenant Richard Earl Pingree was the son of Mr. and Mrs. Earl Pingree, and he died on February 19, 1942. His parents had received a call from Australia from him just the week before, which was really unusual considering the time and, and situations that were going on. He was killed in a mechanical crash of his Kitty Hawk plane near Port Pirie, Australia. What was really interesting about this story was his commanding officer, who was Major Floyd Pell, and um, Richard Pingree had trained with Major Pell's uh, brother in the United States, but Major Pell was also killed on February 19th in the Battle of Darwin when he flew right in the middle of the Japanese invasion. His death is listed as KIA, and if you check earlier podcasts, you can find more information about those. On March 31st, 1942, we lost Private First Class Eldon Pierce on the island of Samoa, also listed as a killed in action, but that one's kind of a mystery, so you can find that on an earlier podcast. Not all the deaths were caused by war, and during 1942, we would have several training accidents. The first was Aviation Cadet Sherman Hatch Smith, who was killed on April 17, 1942, when his plane crashed on a routine um, flight in Lemoore, California. He is buried in the Altares Cemetery on 36th Street, where his headstone reads, Brief, brave, and glorious was his young career. He was 21. So now we have to go back to the Philippines, where there are several Weber County boys there. MacArthur was in charge of the American and Philippine armies, and he realized they would not be able to hold Manila, so they took the troops to the Bataan Peninsula, which was about 86 miles away, to wait for a rescue to be sent from Pearl Harbor. Unfortunately, they did not realize everything that was going on, and they didn't know that there would be no help coming. The peninsula is on the island of western Luzon, and it's about 30 miles long and 15 miles wide. Corregidor Island is another place we'll talk about, lies just off the southern tip of the entrance to Manila Bay, and some of the uh, MacArthur's troops escaped to Corregidor, but eventually they had to surrender. So according to military records, Corporal Garth B. Tillotson, 28, was killed in action on the Bataan Peninsula on April 27th of 1942. Bataan had fell on April 9th, and shortly after Jonathan Wainwright, the general, surrendered. This would be the start of the brutal Bataan Death March, where 70,000 American and Filipinos were forced to march without food or water for 65 miles. They were divided into groups of 100, so the march took many, many days. And although we didn't know it at the time, based on the date, I'm pretty sure that Corporal Tillotson was one of those who died during the march. Of that 70,000, only 54,000 made it to the camp, and then an additional 26,000 Filipinos and 1,500 Americans died. 
The rest were sent to POW camps. His family did not get the news of his death until 1945. We will lose two sailors in the Battle of the Coral Sea that took place on May 4th through May 8th in 1942. Seaman Second Class Edmund Wayne Archibald was on the USS Lexington when it was sunk on May 8th. Seaman David Huntsman had a little different story. He was on an oil tanker, the Neosho, when it was hit, and when the order was given to prepare to abandon ship, he was one of 68 men who actually did. They made it to the lifeboats and lashed themselves together, but the Neosho didn't sink. The captain took a head count and immediately figured out what happened to the missing crew, but unfortunately the wrong coordinates were given and it took nine days to find them. When they had found them, all but four had died in the lifeboats, and um, Seaman Huntsman was one. Both Archibald and Huntsman were only 18 years old. On May 12, 1942, there was another accident. Private S. Wayne Dye, 31 of Ogden, was killed when the bomber he was training in crashed with another bomber in a mid-air accident at the Will Rogers Air Force Base in Oklahoma. For the next death, we go back to the Philippines, where Technical Sergeant Vernon H. Talbert was first reported as missing in action on May 7th. In 1944, he was reported as officially dead, and a later report indicated that he died of malaria in a Japanese prison camp on May 14th. There was some interesting information in a news article from 1944 that all prisoners who were in the Philippines at the time of the surrender of Corregidor were taken directly to a prison camp. If he had died in the prison camp, he would have been one of the very first groups taken on the Bataan Death March. So this next one is a death that I did not have already, and some of the information from the servicemen in the Philippines is not readily available. So there's one that I will be working more on, but another Weber County soldier, Captain Robert S. Bud Walker, died on May 20th in the Philippines just a week later. On June 4th, 1942, we lost Private First Class Albert Morgan, who died of pneumonia at the Fort Baker Hospital in California. At the time, penicillin had just been um, invented, and it was very scarce. It would not be available to the military until 1943. Private Morgan was just 20, and he's buried in the Altara Cemetery. Sergeant Clark Holmes, 25, son of Ray and Elvira Holmes, died on June 30th, 1942, at the Camp O'Donnell Prison Camp, and that was where the Bataan Death March servicemen walked to. His death was not reported to his parents until August 15th, 1946, a year after the Pacific War had ended. We had another Air Corps death on July 16th, 1942, when Sergeant Walter Schofield with the 19th Bombardment Group's B-17 crashed at Horn Island Airfield in Queensland, Australia. The crash was weather-related. He was 21. On August 26, 1942, Flight Sergeant Morris E. Shaw died. He was a resident of Weber County, but his mother was Canadian, and he had joined the Royal Canadian Air Force in July of 1940, before the United States had even entered the war. He died when the Spitfire he was piloting collided with another Spitfire. Both planes crashed into the sea. His body was recovered, and he is buried in the Carew St. Mary's Churchyard in Wells. He was 29. 
We lost another pilot in an accident on September 13, 1942, when Lieutenant Wendell Sepich, P-38 training plane, crashed into the Pacific Ocean off La Jolla, California. He was 23, and he is buried in the Ogden City Cemetery. On October 15, 1942, Navy Chief Quartermaster John Purdy, 30, died on the USS Fierro. It was a convoy taking supplies to the Marines at Guadalcanal when she was attacked by the Japanese. He was first reported as missing in action, and the family was not notified until the next year that he had been killed. Another Ogden aviator was killed in a plane accident on October 26th of 1942. Second Lieutenant Robert Preston Blair died at the Luke Field in Arizona. He was killed when he and another pilot collided with their AT-9s. Um, this was their first experience with flying the 89, which was a twin engine plane. He was 24. Lieutenant Junior Grade Lewis Thomas Brown, 34, the son of George Ian Mott Brown, died on the USS San Francisco. On November 12, 1942, she was attacked by Japanese torpedo planes during landing operations at Guadalcanal. And as the Japanese planes started the downward approach, it was shot down by San Francisco's guns, so it was almost an unintentional kamikaze um, attack. The attack continued on November 13th, and she was caught between two groups of Japanese ships, received heavy fire on both sides, and sustained 45 separate hits. Along with Lieutenant Brown, the dead included Admiral Callaghan and his entire senior staff. Just one day later, Fireman First Class Orlef Oram, the son of Alma and Blanche Hunsaker Oram, was reported missing in action as part of the crew of the USS Monson that sank during the Battle for Guadalcanal. On November 13th, she was ordered to intercept a Japanese battleship attempting to bomb Henderson Field on the island of Savo. 136 enlistees were killed, including Fireman Oram. His status was not changed to killed in action until December of 1943. And on December 17, 1942, there was another accident at Fort Knox, Kentucky, where Private Donald George Taylor, 25, the son of Mr. and Mrs. George Taylor of Far West, died in an Army tank accident. So at the end of 1942, including Ensign Merrill, who was lost on the Arizona Weber County had suffered 23 casualties, and a lot of this won't be known until later in the war. The Navy had lost eight, the Army six, the Marines one, the Royal Canadian Air Force one, and the American Air Corps six. And of those six casualties, only one had been killed in action. The rest all died in accidents. So that's a pretty big toll for 1942, but as of right now, I have 187 deaths, so those will happen during the next three years. So we are coming up on the 80th anniversary of Pearl Harbor in a few weeks, and the news at the time is so interesting in the newspapers. So what I've decided to do is to just do a this week, 80 years ago, about what was going on um in Weber County and the rest of the world. So you will find that on my um, website. It will be a blog post. So I will be notifying you about those and just really interesting how Weber County and the world was changing a little bit at a time after Pearl Harbor. 
So thanks for joining. Um, you can find this on Weber County's Greatest Generation website and my Facebook page, and also available on iTunes. Thanks.